The House of Roll journeys far and wide to bring you exceptional quality kitchen and bath fixtures. In all of this, you'll see the details of your own story. The story of a life well-crafted. Welcome to the House of Roll. of America is being squandered. How are we going to restore our nation back to a sensible, citizen-centric government? This is my country. Populism with a purpose. Welcome to Reimagine America with Joyce Cordy. Joyce is a businesswoman, not a politician, and she's here to offer pragmatic, possible, and post-partisan solutions for the 21st century. Now, your host for Reimagine America, Joyce Cordy. And welcome to the Reimagine America Radio Hour. The traditional media and traditional partisan politicians on both sides of the aisle have been working overtime to inflame your passions again this week. Over the past few days, the wall-to-wall televised fire, fury, and bedevilment that now passes for governing went well beyond the imagination of any successful Hollywood scriptwriter. I mean... 70 people dragged screaming out of a judiciary hearing, Um, an auction taking place in the midst of a cybersecurity um, hearing. I mean, these are, um, you know, these are not the normal ways in which a government works. My purpose is not to inflame you. It's not to get you angry and make you go to the barricades. My purpose is to inform you, to give you information, kind of to be the, the, what, you know, the cooling saucer for the tea, so that you can make your own independent judgment on current events and to encourage you to act on that judgment. As a businesswoman, I focus a lot on the numbers. Numbers tell me what's out of the norm, what needs attention, what needs immediate triage, and then how to prioritize the necessary changes. And in the numbers this week, 201,000 new jobs is something we should all be extremely happy about. Um, The economy is um, working very, very well right this moment, and we should all be um, extremely pleased about that. What's causing all of this economic activity is more you and me, uh, consumer confidence. Um, But there are some warning signs in the economy right now. Housing for existence. Housing starts and uh, sales of existing homes are both down month over month for the entire um, summer. And that's usually not a good sign in the long term for the economy. So we need to be watching that. But right now, 201,000 new jobs. Let's all um, applaud that um, and applaud all the efforts of everyone that's contributed to this and um, a confident American business community. And if we move along in the numbers this week, 
11 minutes. That's all the time it took Nebraska Senator Ben Sass to teach a national high school civics class. It was a thing of beauty. 51. That's the number of votes Brett Kavanaugh needs to be confirmed as an Associate Justice of the Supreme Court. $10 million. That's what Jeff Bezos donated to the With Honor Congressional PAC this week. And one anonymous memo. Is it worth the effort to track down the author? One of the concepts that I try to teach my clients and my family is reuse. If some program process technique or sweater has worked well in a similar situation, something analogous in the recent past, then, you know, either as um, consumers or as business people, we can save a lot of money, time, and energy by reusing those things that we have that have been successful rather than scrapping it just for the sake of saying that we're doing something new. And so in the case of Nebraska Senator Ben Sass, uh, his opening remarks at the Kavanaugh confirmation hearing, um, I just could not agree more with what he said or make the case better than the good senator did, which is why I thought you might enjoy hearing his remarks in their entirety. I mean, they were broadcasted about mm, 8.30, 9 o'clock in the morning here on Wednesday. Uh, if you have kids at home, especially those who will soon take their high school civics and exit exams, this would be a good time to bring them to the radio. The senator holds a Ph.D. in history from Yale University. He served as an undersecretary of education in the Bush administration. He then taught at the University of Texas School of Public Policy before he returned to Nebraska as the youngest ever president at Midlands University. He was a university president at the age of 37. This is the man you need to listen to because someday he may be the conservative candidate for the presidency of the United States. So we are going to take an early, quick commercial break. Um, and then we're going to bring you, because it's a little longer than our normal second period, um, the senator's complete statement without an interruption, because I think it's really that important. Um, and after that, um, we'll open the phone lines and see what you think. And on that note... We'll be back in just a moment with Senator Ben Sass. You're listening to Reimagine America on 860 AM, The Answer. Once again, your host, Joyce Cordy. It's predictable that every confirmation hearing now is going to be overblown, politicized circus. And it's because we've accepted a new theory about how our three branches of government should work, and in particular, how the judiciary should work. What Supreme Court confirmation hearings should be about is an opportunity to go back and do schoolhouse rock civics for our kids. We should be talking about how a bill becomes a law and what the job of Article 2 is and what the job of Article 3 is. So let's try just a little bit. How did we get here? And how can we fix it? I want to make just four brief points. 
Number one, in our system, the legislative branch is supposed to be the center of our politics. Number two, it's not. Why not? Because for the last century, and increasing by the decade right now, more and more legislative authority is delegated to the executive branch every year. Both parties do it. The legislature is impotent, the legislature is weak, and most people here want their jobs more than they really want to do legislative work, and so they punt most of the work to the next branch. Third consequence is that this transfer of power means the people yearn for a place where politics can actually be done. And when we don't do a lot of big, actual political debating here, we transfer it to the Supreme Court. And that's why the Supreme Court is increasingly a substitute political battleground in America. It is not healthy, but it is what happens, and it's something that our founders wouldn't be able to make any sense of. And fourth and finally, we badly need to restore the proper duties and the balance of power from our constitutional system. So point one, the legislative branch is supposed to be the locus of our politics properly understood. Since we're here in this room today, because this is a Supreme Court confirmation hearing, we're tempted to start with Article 3. But really, we need to, Article 3 is the part of the Constitution that sets up the judiciary. We really should be starting with Article 1, which is us. What is the legislature's job? The Constitution's drafters began with the legislature. These are, these are equal branches, but Article 1 comes first for a reason, and that's because policymaking is supposed to be done in the body that makes laws. That means that this is supposed to be the institution dedicated to political fights. If we see lots and lots of protests in front of the Supreme Court, that's a pretty good litmus test barometer of the fact that our republic isn't healthy. Because people shouldn't be thinking they are protesting in front of the Supreme Court. They should be protesting in front of this body. The legislature is designed to be controversial, noisy, sometimes even rowdy, because making laws means we have to hash out the reality that we don't all agree. Government is about power. Government is not just another word for things we do together. The reason we have limited government in America is because we believe in freedom. We believe in souls, we believe in persuasion, we believe in love, and those things aren't done by power. But the government acts by power. And since the government acts by power, we should be reticent to use power. And so it means when you differ about power, you have to have a debate. And this institution is supposed to be dedicated to debate and should be based on the premise that we know since we don't all agree, we should try to constrain that power just a little bit, but then we should fight about it and have a vote in front of the American people. And then what happens? The people get to decide whether they want to hire us or fire us. They don't have to hire us again. This body is the political branch where policymaking fights should happen. And if we are the easiest people to fire, it means the only way the people can maintain power in our system is if almost all the politicized decisions happen here, not in Article 2 or Article 3. So that brings us to a second point. How do we get to a place where the legislature decided to give away its power? We've been doing it for a long time. Over the course of the last century, but especially since the 1930s and then ramping up since the 1960s, a whole lot of the responsibility in this body has been kicked to a bunch of alphabet soup bureaucracies. All the acronyms that people know about their government or don't know about their government are the places where most actual policymaking, kind of in a way lawmaking, is happening right now. This is not what Schoolhouse Rock says. 
There's no verse of Schoolhouse Rock that says give a whole bunch of power to the alphabet soup agencies and let them decide what the governance decision should be for the people because the people don't have any way to fire the bureaucrats. And so what we mostly do around this body is not pass laws. What we mostly do is decide to give permission to the secretary or the administrator of bureaucracy X, Y, or Z to make law-like regulations. That's mostly what we do here. We go home and we pretend we make laws. No, we don't. We write giant pieces of legislation, 1,200 pages, 1,500 pages long, that people haven't read, filled with all these terms that are undefined, and we say the secretary of such and such shall promulgate rules that do the rest of our dang jobs. That's why there's so many fights about the executive branch and about the judiciary, because this body rarely finishes its work. And the House is even worse. Uh, I don't really believe that. It just seemed like it, you needed to try to unite us in some way. So I admit that there are rational arguments that one could make for this new system. The Congress can't manage all the nitty-gritty details of everything about modern government, and this system tries to give power and control to experts in their fields, where most of us in Congress don't know much of anything or uh, about technical matters for sure, but you could also impugn our wisdom if you want. But when you're talking about technical, uh, complicated matters, it's true that the Congress would have a hard time f sorting out every final dot and tittle about every detail. But the real reason, at the end of the day, that this institution punts most of its power to executive branch agencies is because it's a convenient way for legislators to have to, to be able to avoid taking responsibility for controversial and often unpopular decisions. If people want to get reelected over and over again, and that's your highest goal, if your biggest long-term thought around here is about your own incumbency, then actually giving away your power is a pretty good strategy. It's not a very good life, but it's a pretty good strategy for incumbency. And so at the end of the day, a lot of the power delegation that happens from this branch is because the Congress has decided to self-neuter. Well, guess what? The important, the important thing isn't whether or not the Congress has lame jobs. The important thing is that when the Congress neuters itself and gives power to an unaccountable fourth branch of government, it means the people are cut out of the process. There's nobody in Nebraska. There's nobody in Minnesota or Delaware who elected the deputy assistant administrator of plant quarantine at the USDA. And yet if the deputy assistant administrator of plant quarantine does something to make Nebraskans' lives really difficult, which happens to farmers and ranchers in Nebraska, who do they protest to? Where do they go? How do they navigate the complexity and the thicket of all the lobbyists in this town to do executive agency lobbying? They can't. And so what happens is they don't have any ability to speak out and to fire people through an election. And so ultimately, when the Congress is neutered, when the administrative state grows, when there is this fourth branch of government, it makes it harder and harder for the concerns of citizens to be represented and articulated by people that the people know that they have power over. All the power right now, or almost all the power right now, happens off stage, And that leaves a lot of people wondering, who's looking out for me? And that brings us to the third point. The Supreme Court becomes our substitute political battleground. It's only nine people. You can know them. You can demonize them. You can try to make them messiahs. But ultimately, because people can't navigate their way through the bureaucracy, they turn to the Supreme Court looking for politics. And knowing that our elected officials no longer care enough to do the hard work of reasoning through the places where we differ and deciding to shroud our power at times, it means that we look for nine justices to be super legislators. We look for nine justices to try to right the wrongs from other places in the process. When people talk about wanting to have empathy from their justices, 
This is what they're talking about. They're talking about trying to make the justices do something that the Congress refuses to do as it constantly abdicates its responsibility. The hyperventilating that we see in this process and the way that today's hearing started with 90 minutes of theatrics that are pre-planned with, with certain members of the other side here, it shows us a system that is wildly out of whack. And thus a fourth and final point. The solution here is not to try to find judges who will be policymakers. The solution is not to try to turn the Supreme Court into an election battle for TV. The solution is to restore a proper constitutional order with a balance of powers. We need schoolhouse rock back. We need a Congress that writes laws and then stands before the people and suffers the consequences and gets to go back to our own Mount Vernon if that's what the electors decide. We need an executive branch that has a humble view of its job as enforcing the law, not trying to write laws in the Congress's absence. And we need a, a judiciary that tries to apply written laws to facts and cases that are actually before it. This is the elegant and the fair process that the founders created. It's the process where the people who are elected Two and six years in this institution, four years in the executive branch can be fired because the justices and the judges, the men and women who serve America's people by wearing black robes, they're insulated from politics. This is why we talk about an independent judiciary. This is why they wear robes. This is why we shouldn't talk about Republican and Democratic judges and justices. This is why we say justice is blind. This is why we give judges lifetime tenure. And this is why this is the last job interview Brett Kavanaugh will ever have. Because he's going to a job where he's not supposed to be a super legislator. So the question before us today is not what does Brett Kavanaugh think 11 years ago on some policy matter. The question before us is whether or not he has the temperament and the character to take his policy views and his political preferences and put them in a box marked irrelevant and set it aside every morning when he puts on the black robe. The question is, does he have the character and temperament to do that? If you don't think he does, vote no. But if you think he does, stop the charades. Because at the end of the day, I think all of us know that Brett Kavanaugh understands his job isn't to rewrite re laws as he wishes they were. He understands that he's not being interviewed to be a super legislator. He understands that his job isn't to seek popularity. His job is to be fair and dispassionate. It is not to exercise empathy. It is to follow written laws. Contrary to the onion-like smears that we hear outside, Judge Kavanaugh doesn't hate women and children. Judge Kavanaugh doesn't lust after dirty water and stinky air. No, looking at his record, it seems to me that what he actually dislikes are legislators that are too lazy and too risk-averse to do our actual jobs. It seems to me that if you read his 300-plus opinions, what his opinions reveal to me is a dissatisfaction, I think he would argue a constitutionally compelled dissatisfaction, with power-hungry executive branch bureaucrats doing our job when we fail to do it. And in this view, I think he's aligned with the founders. For our Constitution places power not in the hands of this city's bureaucracy, which can't be fired, but our Constitution places the policymaking power in the 535 of our hands because the voters can hire and fire us. And if the voters are going to retain their power, they need a legislature that's responsive to politics, not a judiciary that's responsive to politics. It seems to me that Judge Kavanaugh is ready to do his job. The question for us is whether we're ready to do our job. For more information on today's topic, visit reimagineamerica.org. That's reimagineamerica.org. Back in a moment with more Reimagine America on 860 AM. The answer. Now, back 
to Reimagine America with Joyce Cordy on 860 AM, The Answer. And we're back. Um, and you will find in the uh, podcast version of today's show, which will be posted at reimagineamerica.org tomorrow, you'll find um, Senator Sasse's comments in full. Um, and let's let's take just a second before we dive into the Judge Kavanaugh hearing itself to say that um, in that discussion uh, that we, you've just heard from Ben Sass of the three parts of government, Article One, Article Two, and Article Three, is the passionate belief that I have that you and I, the citizens, the folks in the middle who every day have to go out and make and and find facts and make compromises that keep our businesses moving forward, we can regain control of our government and that unelected, unaccountable, anonymous bureaucracy can work for us because the legislature, if it had the backbone, uh, is can place limits on the what I call the the double down on both civil service rights and union rights. So, as we approach this sixty day period before the midterm elections, um, take. Senator Ben Sass's words to heart. This is up to you and me. If the people who represent us are doing the job, are working across the aisle, are trying to make things happen that will make this country better and smarter and stronger, then we should reelect them. If they're not, if they're divisive, if they're making it impossible to pass good legislation then we shouldn't reelect them. It's up to us. And as we get closer to election time, um, I will probably put out my voter scorecard again that helps you to objectively quantify who you should vote for. But we'll talk about that on another day. In the meantime, I think that the hearings this week um, on the nomination of Judge Brett Kavanaugh to be an associate justice of the Supreme Court, underscore, underscore the politicization of the court. And, you know, it was tough um, 10 years ago. It was difficult six years ago. But if you think back to November 2013, when Harry Reid employed the so-called nuclear option, in other words, took away the requirement that there be 60 votes to confirm a judge to the federal appeals and circuit courts, um, we, we began to see uh, the actual um, deliberate, you know, tell me whether you're a Republican or a Democrat, uh, politicization of the court. And so whatever you think about the stall that that Mitch McConnell accomplished on the Merrick, Merrick Garland nomination in um, early 2016, um, it is not surprising that we found ourselves in a situation with Justice Gorsuch where Mitch McConnell said, OK, we're just not we're going to apply the nuclear option to Supreme Court 
justices as well. Now, McConnell did that very reluctantly because he knows that there will be payback. And therein, again, is the sad fact that we are politicizing the court and by doing that, weakening our democracy. That these people should be calm and dispassionate and able to reason out a decision based on constitutional um, uh, conformity and based on written law. Um, was interesting that during the hearings, uh, and I did try to watch as much of it as I could, um, uh, that Judge uh, Kavanaugh, by someone's count, used uh, pulled out his little pocket, very dog-eared little pocket uh, constitution over 300 times. And there was between he and Amy Klobuchar an incredibly interesting discussion of what is called Federalist 37. That's one of the, of the articles in support of the Constitution that was written by Alexander Hamilton in 1788. And I made myself a note, says I have to go back and read that again because it was a difficult not remembering every bit of it to follow their extremely complicated but um, learned discussion. So here's where we are. Um, Gorsuch didn't get 60 votes. He got about 55 or 56. I don't quite remember. Um, we can expect that um, unless something really goes wrong with Susan Collins, who has already said that she believes that he would not, that Kavanaugh would not overturn Roe v. Wade, um, that he believes it is settled law. And listening to him, I believe it is settled law. So let's sort a little bit of the fact from fiction. Um, and then after we've sorted the fact from fiction, we're going to say, if you have comments, we want to hear them. Um, I was rather puzzled, personally, by all the focus on his time in the Bush White House as the staff secretary. So you know what the staff secretary does. The staff secretary takes all of the paper that's going to go to the president for decision making and organizes it. And make sure that all the opinions from all the stakeholders are represented so that the president can make a good decision. Now, in some cases, that requires, the reason you have to have a lawyer in that job is that it requires that you do some analysis. Now, as a consultant, that's often been my job, to do the analysis, to say, okay, here's your industry. You know, here's your company, here's your problem, and here are various ways we could solve it. Okay, I don't advocate for one solution or the other. I just say, here are the cost benefits and the, ob and the issues with getting there. Now, that's exactly what the staff secretary does. So when Brett Kavanaugh was confirmed, uh, to the uh, Washington, to the, I can't remember the number of the District Court of Appeals in Washington, which is the number two court in the land, okay, is the moment at which people would really should have been concerned about his opinions um, as, as written analysis. If you wanted to know if he was an analytic person, 
person and a and a and a good lawyer that at that moment. But you know, after all the contentious and his confirmation was contentious because of his role in the Bush White House. Um, I would have thought that that was a settled case. You know, when I hire somebody, I look at their most recent job. I I look to see, especially if they've been there for 12 years, you know, I want to see what they've done recently. I want to see if they're progressing, if they're getting smarter, if they're learning how to manage risk better, et cetera. You know, these are a little different than legal decisions. Um, and... And I think those are the kinds of things that in this hearing we should have been probing because there are more than 300, 300 is kind of a theme here, there are more than 300 decisions in the last 12 years that um, Kavanaugh has written completely or written a part of. So if you really, really want to know what he's, where he is judicially, you re- need to analyze those opinions. And good Lord, there were enough people massed behind each member of the Senate to have done that work. Do you know what that hearing cost you? Did you see all of those young lawyers parked behind, masked would be a better word, crammed in behind every single um, senator on the dais? And you're paying for all of that. Okay, and so why weren't they doing that analysis to argue with him about his opinions from the bench? No, they wanted to go back and have one more go, the Democrats, at George W. Bush. Have they noticed his approval ratings lately? I guess not. Okay, and they failed. They failed. They talked about racial profiling. He'd written a memo on racial profiling. Read it. He was tasked with making sure that the application of certain uh, parts of the uh, Patriot Act did not create racial profiling. He, he was there to prove the inverse of that case, and he did. When it comes to Roe v. Wade, he didn't say, I believe it's not settled law. He said in a statement, in, in, a, in an analysis for a statement the president was going to make, that legal scholars did not completely agree. And yes, that bast- that that icon of conservatism, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, says, while she supports Roe v. Wade, that it was incorrectly decided. So what I would have done if I were going to make use of the taxpayer's money is I would have said, okay, I have these concerns. Now, can I map those to something in his opinions? And failing to find a a smoking gun there that says he's a terrible human being. I mean, you understand this enemy of women is the father of two girls, is the coach of the all-girls school they go to, basketball team. That's how much he hates women. They were all there behind him, all of his players. And they are the champions. He does things well. And the ABA says he's the most qualified constitutional scholar of his age. And so, folks, as we go to commercial, just let me say, Kavanaugh will probably squeak through, but that's wrong. And we'll be back right after this brief commercial message to tell you why that's wrong.
You're listening to Reimagine America on 860 AM, The Answer. Once again, your host, Joyce Cordy. And we're back. And as we went to commercial, if you're just joining us now, uh, you will find the entire podcast at reimagineamerica.org tomorrow. Um, And as I said, I was going to tell you why I think it's so incredibly wrong uh, to have drugged this good man through the mud in front of his children and why the screaming. I mean, if you saw the pictures of the costumes that people wore in protest i mean as i said earlier a hollywood scriptwriter couldn't have made this up but it talks about how it, it it demonstrates how crazy and bifurcated our politics has become and in so doing explains why 50 percent of us don't bother to vote because we don't think it will matter oh you're just proving that it does that it does matter because you can see the result okay so just a couple more points on the subject which is you know what's the difference between a liberal judge they're democratic appointees and a conservative judge they're republican appointees uh is is that a liberal justice believes that the constitution is a living document and the supreme court can amend it okay um to fit current society so in roe v wade they would say that was correctly decided because there were no abortions in 1787 which is historically incorrect but uh if you carry it further in 1787 women didn't really have rights they were practically chattel um but the hole in that argument is that women's rights were granted in 1920 through a constitutional amendment process and that's what conservatives believe that the government the legislative branch of the government whether it is at the local state or national level is limited by the provisions of the united states constitution and it is their job to decide whether the law as applied in a particular case meets that constitutional test and if it doesn't to instruct the legislative branch how to make a law that is conforming or if necessary to suggest that congress consider beginning the amendment process to create whatever uh is the necessary and right legislation okay so um, those are the, the that's the, the the definition. And personally, I come down on that conservative side that says a judge is a judge. It's his job to call balls and strikes, not to hit home runs. And so there's been a lot of kerfuffle about political dirty tricks that Diane Feinstein cleared Kavanaugh of years ago. And now they're saying, oh, he committed perjury in his first hearing. And if you think Merrick Garland's going to touch that with a 10-foot pole, you're crazy. Garland still wants his chance at that court. And biggest of all was this, do you know somebody who works at the law firm that represents some of the people in the administration? Well, you know, if you're a judge on the appeals court in Washington, D.C., and you've been in the White House before that, it's probable that you know almost every lawyer in town at some point. So none of this craziness was necessary because there are no legitimate concerns that anybody's been able to raise. 
And as I said, you look at his opinions, you compare them to things he's written about, you understand that Elena Kagan, okay, Obama's solicitor general, who now sits on that Supreme Court and got 30 Republican votes, not because they agreed with her philosophically, but because she was qualified. Elena Kagan appointed Kavanaugh to teach constitutional law at Harvard University's law school when she was the dean there. So what we have done is we've set up a situation where Kavanaugh will likely be confirmed, but with less than 60 votes. And that the drubbing he took at the hands of desperate Democrats will follow him to the court and perhaps for at least a time make him less effective. But what we saw this week will undoubtedly fill the campaign coffers of way too many ambitious Democrats who are already, God help us, it's not even the 2018 midterms, and they're running for the 2020 presidential nomination on the Democratic side. And by the way, if Joe Biden wants it, you're all toast anyway. So, you know, I don't, I don't understand the rush. And one last point before we change the subject, because as you can tell, I'm a little heated about this. I mean, I thought a good man was treated really badly. Um, one last point about Spartacus. Nah, Corey, that was really closer to Robespierre and his uh, pop poulet. And if you know the course of the French Revolution, then we all know, Corey, where that story ended in the whoosh of the guillotine. And on that happy note, let's talk about a $10 million contribution to a pack called With Honor. And yes, I think it's time that Jeff Bezos gave back. I applaud his start by donating $10 million to the With Honor Pack. So what is the With Honor Pack? Because I've contributed to it. I'm going to urge you to contribute to it. It helps Iraq and Afghanistan veterans run for Congress. It helps both Democrats and Republicans. It will play a role on the Republican side in Arizona, for example, where the first woman fighter pilot is fighting for a United States Senate seat being vacated by Jeff Flake. Okay, so whether you give money to her directly or you give money through the With Honor um, PAC, um, we got to help her. We got to support her. So, again, With Honor looks for veterans running for Congress, both Democrats and Republicans. It's not like no labels, which has a decidedly retro Clinton bias. There are no political litmus tests with honor. And as I said, I have sent them some money. But here's the thing I want you to think about. Right now, the Congress of the United States contains fewer members who have ever worn the uniform of this country that at any time in our history since the, the days before the First World War. 
So if you, it, it occurs to me that if you are going to be a member of Congress who votes to send young Americans to war, it's useful to have had some understanding of the realities of war, that it is brutal, that it is grim, that all the people who participate are scarred for the rest of their lives. Truman, Eisenhower, Kennedy, Nixon, Ford, Carter, Reagan, George H.W. Bush, all wore the uniform of the nation in times of war, and George W. Bush served in the reserves. Veterans learn a lot of things that make them better legislators. They learn about courage and sacrifice, about shared hardship, about the importance of teamwork. I'll tell you what, if you're in a dogfight or you're in a trench and there's mortars coming at you, or if you're a Marine on, a, on the, the border of, of Syria and Iraq right now, and there is an Iranian and a Russian camp nearby, and there are 400 Russians coming at you, there are no atheists in that camp, nor are there any racists in those trenches. You don't care if the guy next to you is white, black, brown or green you care if he can shoot you care if he cares about saving your life and his life and those experiences make these people better leaders in peace because they love their country more than they love their political party because they can fight hard for principle and still love the person they're fighting with and while they understand the difference between political rivalry and somebody being your enemy. So, with honor, deserves your respect and contribution. Now, back to Reimagine America with Joyce Cordy on 860 AM, The Answer. And we're back with just a few closing thoughts. Um, I, as I said, I applaud Bezos for contributing to a nonpartisan effort to actually make Congress a legislative body, again, rather than an overpriced debating society, which is what it is. Um, Congress today is cowed by the executive. And don't jump to the conclusion I'm not Trump bashing. Obama was just as bad about using his phone and his pen and and governing by executive order and bypassing uh, the legislature. Um, You know, if you want one Hail Mary executive action that both of them have dealt with, uh, DACA comes to mind. Okay, so because I'm a businesswoman, not a politician, it drives me crazy all of this inability to move anything forward, to spending gazillions of dollars and not making anything better. All right, it just drives me nuts. So if we want meaningful tax reform, really good trade deals, immigration reform, which has to be done in pieces, a social safety net reform and an infrastructure modernization and national security. We got to elect people who are willing to go and have the debate and have the fight and then go to the bar and have a drink together afterwards. Because I know that you only win, you only get big things done, good things done when you have a win-win. And so 
on that thought, I have issued a few invitations to members of Congress who are in the area who are running for re-election. Um, I'm asking if they're willing to share a few minutes to talk with me and with you about issues, not about politics, about things like Social Security reform, water, um, fixing DACA, um, and, and other issues that are materially important to you and me um, and our children and, the, and their future. So we will see. I'll keep you posted on how that goes. Um, and yes, I did read the anonymous memo in the New York Times, and I will say only a couple of things, that its impact is blunted by anonymity. And as to the 25th Amendment, if you quote, I can quote a Democrat here, Dick Durbin, I think, put it best this week. It's a very steep hill to climb. And because it's a really steep hill to climb. I wrote a blog about it that explains the process of how it works, and it's posted at reimagineamerica.org. Excitedly, we will launch this week an entirely new reimagineamerica.org site. Um, It's got new content. It's got new features. um, I'm going to have a daily scribe on it. Uh, We're going to try doing it in written form, but it may end up being a scream. Um, so if you're on our mailing list, you're going to get an announcement. Um, if you don't want to miss this launch, but you're not yet on the mailing list, you can go to reimagineamerica.org and sign up on our mailing list and you'll get the announcement. As I always tell you, I know what interests me, but what's more important because I want you to go out and vote, whether you vote Republican, Democrat, or something else. Um, it's important what interests you. What do you want to know about? So if you have questions and topics that you want to ask or get answered on the air, send me an email at joyce at reimagineamerica.org. I do try to respond to as many listener comments as possible. Um, in addition to reimagineamerica.org, you can find me at reimagine-america on Facebook, um, Joyce Cordy, all one word, at or Reimagine America Radio Hour on Twitter. Um, and I've been using Twitter for quite a bit lately. Um, and the podcast is posted to the Reimagine America Radio Hour page on Mondays. We're independent and nonprofit. If you appreciate our independent voice, you could go and make a small contribution at reimagineamerica.org. And in the meantime, and until next week, have a wonderful week, and we'll talk to you soon. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.